0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We all know how important internet access is to our work and our social lives, but did it also keep us safe from COVID? Today we will talk with a journalist and physician who's written a piece that says it did. And then we're going to talk about all the money we decided to spend on roads a few years ago here in Michigan and how little difference it has made. Underinvestment still defines our approach to infrastructure. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
1: Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills. Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu.
0: Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So go over to your computer and open up a web page. This is something we all do many, many, many times a day to the point where it just feels mundane because it's easy to do and it's just part of our lives. But when you do that, you're transported to a world of information that, think about it, just a few years ago was a lot harder to access. All that information, the statistics and data and narratives that you come across, they, they help us guide our lives right now. They tell us about our neighborhoods and cities, about the way that we are interacting with each other. And of course, it notifies us of immediate threats to our well being. Think about the things that you learn on the internet that make you make immediate decisions about what to do or not to do. Now, for more than two years, our largest concern has been this virus that caused a global pandemic. And if you have been quickly able to know when, where, and how that virus is moving, if you have immediate access to the internet, you were probably safer over that last two years and better prepared. As more and more of us log onto the internet each day, as almost all of us end up with access to that internet, even in our pockets on these phones that we have, it's getting harder and harder to imagine a world without it. And that leaves real questions about what the government should be doing to ensure that everybody does have that immediate, equitable access to broadband Internet. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. How crucial is it that you'd be able to have this immediate and all the time access to this information? And because of the things that happened over the last two years during this pandemic, Should we be more concerned that there are still people who are disconnected from that, cut off from it by poverty and isolation? To talk more with us about this is Vox journalist Karen Landman. Her her recent piece is called The Surprising Link Between COVID-19 Deaths and Internet Access, The Case for Treating Internet Access as a Health Necessity. Karen, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Your piece is based on a medical study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it ties the link between COVID deaths and Internet access. I want to start with you spending just a little time telling us what that study actually says.
1: Yeah, so this is a study that was actually done at the University of Chicago and they were basically trying to figure out what it was that caused high rates of uh, COVID deaths in communities where there was one um, uh, racial or ethnic majority. So they they selected counties that had a racial and ethnic majority and that had high rates of death. And then they looked for things that, um, that predicted or that were associated with, I should be very careful there, uh, for factors that were associated with high rates of death in those communities. Um, Internet access was just one of many, many factors that they looked at, but it was the only one um, that stood out as a as an associated factor in um, uh, rural, urban and suburban places. And that was it was a pretty robust finding as a, a factor that was associated with high rates of death in all of those types of communities. And that was surprising for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the most important one, of which is that, you know, we kind of think of um, internet access as a rural problem, as uh, one that is a, a primarily an infrastructure problem. And uh, this showed that it really is not purely an infrastructure problem. It's not just a matter of, you know, burying the right cables in the right places to get access for folks in a way that matters to their health. Internet matters to folks' health, even in urban places where, you know, geographic proximity and access to um, information may, you know, may be less of an issue than they are in rural spaces. And, and this is really, I think, one of the most important findings of their studies, that it's also an affordability problem um, mm-hmm. in urban places.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to take a minute to, to just note one thing that you said there, which is that we got to be really careful about the difference between correlation and causation. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. a really important thing to keep in mind. But I also want to want to point out that that what I hear you saying, I think, is that even given that variable and taking that into account, there is a really strong relationship, or there has been over the last two years, uh, between this this access to broadband internet and lower rates of of covid is that is that right what did i hear that right That's,
1: you're absolutely right so you know it's not new for us to know that people who have lower income who are older um and you know have lower educational opportunities lower professional mobility that that those folks are less likely to have broadband internet for a variety of reasons they may not necessarily feel they need it sometimes, you know, uh, some older folks may not really feel comfortable online, not all for sure. Um, But then there are, you know, there are affordability issues. And then there are, um, you know, there are other kinds of problems with um, people not having the skills to navigate the internet or, or use it to their advantage. So not having it in their homes for a variety of reasons, you know, and those, a lot of those same factors we know are also associated with higher risk for getting and getting disease from COVID. And so, you know, I think for a long time, for for the earlier part of the pandemic, it, it would have maybe been kind of easy to say, um, internet, ac- uh, low internet access is a symptom of the same uh, problems that are causing poor health in these populations to begin with, right? So it's not a cause. Of poor health. And um, I think that was kind of a prevailing way of thinking about internet access prior to the pandemic as well, that was really more a, a symptom of all of these other social determinants of health rather than its own social determinant of health. Hmm. Now, what this, what the pandemic really showed us before the study was even done, that when life moves online, you really need the internet in order to, like you said, get good information. Uh, for example, you know, help you get the kind of information you need to trust and find a vaccine, to trust and find testing. But it also allows you to do the kind of work that keeps you from having to have contact with other people. So, um, you know, people who have jobs they can do from home um, have good Internet access to allow them to do those jobs. So we found um, just, you know, any of us who are in a community of folks who had sort of mixed uh, opportunity, saw that the people who had internet access had lower risk. It just seemed innately to make sense. And what this study did was it allowed researchers to actually control for those other things, those other factors, uh, low income, low educational opportunities, and and some of these other factors to really show that even in homes where that was um, controlled for, internet made a difference. So um, that really confirmed what a lot of us were very uh, were becoming very suspicious of earlier in the pandemic that um, internet had its own sort of power in this dynamic
0: yeah I'm talking with Karen Landman uh, she's a journalist epidemiologist and physician who covers health and medicine for Vox. And her recent piece is titled, The Surprising Link Between COVID-19 Deaths and Internet Access, The Case for Treating Internet Access as a Health Necessity. We're talking about all of the things that we've learned about the critical nature of internet access, especially over the last two years, as we have been trying to survive Uh, and manage this uh, pandemic. Uh, We would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us how you have used the internet during the height of the pandemic. Do you feel like it helped keep you protected from COVID-19? Did it connect you to resources like vaccine appointments or other medical uh, medical necessities that uh, you needed? Uh, did you send articles to friends and family members so they could share in the information that you thought was keeping you safe? Uh, also, how do you consider the Internet more broadly in terms of how crucial it is? Think of all of the things that we're doing right now with the Internet that we weren't doing as much before how many of us are able to work for instance from home uh, instead of going into an office something that was really necessary at the height of the pandemic of course it's continuing now in many cases because people are just more comfortable working that way but uh, can you imagine if you didn't have internet access and and, and particularly broadband internet access which makes all of this really possible. Uh, as always the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 that's 313-577-1019 you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Also give us a call and answer a, a, a really simple question should we be treating internet access the way we treat other utilities like water, uh, electricity, all of these things that we think of as non-negotiables in in our lives, should broadband internet get that same kind of uh, consideration and distinction uh, in our country? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media, of course, (laughs) and put the comments there, and uh, we can include you in the program that way. Uh, Karen, I want to put that question to you that I just asked the listeners. Uh, what's the case for the internet being provided for everyone and broadband in particular um, being treated as essentially as a public good?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, this this study and uh, some of the other things that we have learned about internet over the course of the last few years really show that internet access uh, it is strongly associated with health, and um, it it has. I think it has been for a long time, and this has just been a an opportunity for us to show that in um, or for us to see that in in an experimental setting. Um, there are a lot of utilities that are provided, uh, you know, owned publicly owned by governments and uh, sometimes in co-ops and provided. Uh, through city infrastructure um, and serviced by cities in a way that is very different from the way that for-profit internet service providers provide internet. And that uh, there is a a movement, I don't know if movement is exactly the right word for it, but uh, there is a, a, a movement to Uh, provide internet as a public utility through municipal or community networks that are run by cities throughout the country. And I I spoke with somebody who uh, works on developing these kinds of networks uh, in cities. And he said that it is a lot less complicated than cities sometimes think it will be uh, to create and manage these kinds of networks, hmm. and they're incentivized really differently than, you know, than for-profit internet service providers are. And the service that residents receive when they have internet issues and they're using a municipal service provider, the service they get is very, very different from what you get when you call uh, you know, a national service provider. So uh, there's a, a pretty good argument uh, in many cases for treating Internet as a public utility rather than something that is provided in the places and to the folks where uh, the highest profit is most likely. Hmm.
0: Again, 313 1019 is the number here on the phone's call. And tell us uh, what you think of how critical, how crucial uh, the Internet is and was over the length of the uh, of the pandemic Uh, let us know if you think um, uh, internet access should be treated like electricity or water other kinds of public goods um uh karen um let's talk about how deeply unequal the u.s is right now in terms of internet access i think in places like the city of detroit we're aware of uh how difficult it is for for poor people uh, to get access and have consistent access to broadband, but how big is the have-nots group here uh, in our country, and who are they, and where do they live uh, in our in our nation?
1: Yeah, so great questions, and probably the best source of information for this, uh, these data are the, the Pew Research Center. They have been gathering data on internet use and in a variety of different groups since the year 2000. So they have a, a very uh, wide array of different ways to slice these data and look at who, who has access and who doesn't. And, you know, looking at their latest data from uh, the year 2021, uh, the folks who have uh, higher access to the internet tend to be younger. Um, so they tend to be, you know, ages 18 to 29. And actually, you know, up to the age of 49, access lately has been pretty similar. Um, they, they tend to be uh, whiter. Uh, lately, you know, that, that has narrowed as well. Um, uh, and in fact, in the last years of data, access among um, Hispanic and Latinx communities has been a little bit higher than among uh, white Americans. Um, gender is about, you know, access by gender is about the same income still plays a role. Um, since the year 2000 access has been higher for folks who have higher incomes and that, that disparity remains, um, access by education level also remains. I think the last year of data they have for that is, uh, 2019, but even then, um, you know, access was quite a bit lower for folks who, who had less than a high school uh, diploma, They about 71% of folks with a high school diploma had access, while about 98% of folks uh, with a college degree had access. And then, you know, the type of community you live in, whether urban, suburban, or rural, also made a pretty big difference, um, although that difference has also been narrowing over the years. Uh, most recently, 90% of folks in rural areas and about 95% of folks in urban areas had Um, internet access and we're talking here about broadband internet access which itself raises an important point
0: we can talk about that in a minute yeah yeah um big neo on twitter says the internet is incredibly important almost everything now has a portion of internet activity connected to it the only way to ensure everyone has access would be to treat it like a public utility so everyone has access the capitalists won't like that. Um, That's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point about the way we think about internet access right now. Um, What needs to change, I guess, uh, about how we, how we think this through in order to make, uh, to make sure that it is possible to get everyone access?
1: Well, you know, I'm sure your readers are familiar with um, the concept of real estate, or your listeners, sorry, are familiar with the concept of real estate redlining. (laughs) right? The idea that uh, that rules were made to exclude people on the basis of race and ethnicity from certain neighborhoods. And that as a consequence of that, there has been generational loss of opportunity and wealth. Um, and there's a, a, a similar concept of digital redlining, that internet infrastructure has not been placed in the places where there is uh, less of an opportunity to make a profit, uh, often on the basis of income, which, as we know, is often tied with race and ethnicity in this country. And as a consequence, the people who live in the neighborhoods where there's less Internet access have less opportunity. You know, in a home where you have limited broadband Internet access, for example. So let's say, you know, a couple people in the house have smartphones. Um, a kid may be able to do a partial day of school from that home, right? Mm. But um, an adult cannot simultaneously work in that home. And let's say even if they have dial-up internet access, that might be enough for one person to do one thing, um, but not for everybody in the home to do all the things that would help them generate opportunity for their family, whether it is do well in school, uh, you know, perform at a... a a telecommuting job um, and, you know, get groceries in a safe way during a pandemic, um, get information access, doing all of those things simultaneously requires a broadband internet connection. And if um, if it hasn't been put in your community because it wasn't profitable to put it there, uh, then, yeah, you're going to have less opportunity and not just to stay healthy, but to build future opportunity. So the redlining concept really lends itself well to understanding um, some of the dynamics underpinning the lack of Internet access in a lot of urban areas as well. And um, it is, you know, it is profit-driven. These companies, the the internet service providers that, you know, that that many of us are familiar with, uh, it's really up to them to provide, to put internet cables where they want to. And yes, they are subject to uh, restrictions in some states based on um, how some of the other public utilities run things. In some places, there's a a pretty uh, high fee for putting cables on, poles that belong to other public utilities, and that has been cited as a big restriction. Um, you know, and and some of the solutions to this have sort of uh, been not really sustainable. Like a lot of the subsidies for internet access, either, you know, in rural or, or in urban areas have tried to reduce the cost, but they all basically uh, require buttressing these uh, for-profit internet service providers, um, which doesn't really change their incentive structure and, um, and, and the actual long-term ability of communities who historically have not had good access to the internet to have better access in the future. So, uh, you know, the, the argument to make this a public utility is that cities benefit when its residents are doing well, when they're healthy, when they're productive, um, and, and when they are able to build future opportunity. So cities are incentivized to make internet work well within their cities for everyone within their cities. And um, that's a, that's just a very, very different incentive than um, shareholders.
0: Sure. Sure. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Karen Landman about internet access, how crucial it has been over the last two years during the pandemic, how crucial it is to our lives in general and whether we ought to be really focusing on Making sure that everybody, regardless of income uh, or where you live, has that kind of broadband internet access. Uh, We want to get going on the phones as well. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think uh, is so critical about internet access. What role is it playing in your life? What role did it play over the last two years? How different is your life right now? interacting over uh, broadband than it was uh, just before the pandemic also give us a sense of whether you think we ought to be treating this as a public good making sure that everybody has uh, access to it again 313 1019 is the number on the phones we'll get to john on the east side first if you want to join him, give us a call or go to social media put comments there we'll be right back with more Detroit today
1: Bringing you news that matters.
0: Stories that impact your life.
1: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is
2: 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.
0: You're listening to Detroit today on 1019. WDEP. am Stephen Henderson and as always I'm really glad that uh, you've joined us. Our guest is Karen Landman. Uh, she is a physician, an epidemiologist, and a journalist who covers health and medicine for Vox. And she's written a recent piece titled The Surprising Link Between COVID-19 Deaths and Internet Access, The Case for Treating Internet Access as a Health Necessity. We're talking about how crucial Internet access seems in our lives right now, especially after the two years of the pandemic, which required us to kind of stay away from each other but still be able to conduct business and interact socially. It was the internet that made all of those things possible over the last two years. The question now, I think, is how crucial internet access is to our lives and whether we ought to be doing more to make sure that everybody has it. There is, of course, a great technology gap that exists between those of us with means and people who don't have Uh, enough money to have access or who live in places uh, that have not invested in the infrastructure to be able to connect people to the internet. We want to hear from you again uh, on the phones as always Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us uh, how crucial internet access is in your life, uh, how the pandemic maybe changed how crucial internet access is uh, and how you're using it now, how that looks different than it did, uh, maybe two, two and a half years ago. Uh, you can also go to social media, of course, and put comments there and we'll include you in the conversation that way. Uh, we're going to start today with John on the East side. John, welcome to the show.
2: Well, this is a conversation. I'll tell you, you know, you, you look at the, uh, the, the, uh, record of the, uh, DTE and providing us energy and you say, well, is this where we want to go? And, uh, Internet, I'm becoming more and more reliant on it. I listen to DET on the Internet quite a bit now during mm-hmm. the day. And I see just what the problems are, because right in the middle of a really interesting conversation, it cuts out. And it's a it's a huge problem. But uh, I just don't know that we, you know, I don't know what we are. Are we a capitalist society or what? Why do we have the... the uh, you know the different commissions that control our utilities. We used to have a commission that controlled the liquor control. You know the prices of liquor and everything. And I, I just, uh, I, I don't know that this is a good idea.
0: Mm. So, so John, what, what would you prefer? How would you prefer that, that be managed?
2: I, I don't have the answers, but I, you know, I, I, I just don't see that uh, another. Federal agency is is, hmm. the, is the way to go unless yeah. they unless they can you know significantly increase their uh, their um, reliability
0: yeah uh, John great points, and i you know i, I don 't have the answer either, but I think you 're not wrong to point out the insufficiency of the way that we regulate other utilities uh, there 's a similar comment on social media from. Anthony on Twitter says guests keep talking about, quote, public utilities, but I can't think of many around here. There, there, there is uh, an issue, Karen, with the way that we deal with water and electricity and other things that people need now that, mm. that cuts a lot of people off. I think mm. maybe people are skeptical that, uh, that treating Internet access the same way will, will expand the footprint. In other words, make sure that more people have access
1: yeah I, I hear that you know if you have a broken government at a local level then any job you any additional responsibility you give them yeah you have a lot of doubt whether that would be done well um and and done equitably so i i completely hear that you know and i i don't have a solution for that other than to to, to you know be um uh, have have as big a voice as you can and in, in how your local government works and and vote. Um, I will say that, you know, there are are a lot of these municipal community networks in the United States. There are hundreds, Um, mostly in smaller towns. I think that's, um, you know, part of it is it's a little bit easier to mobilize in smaller places because uh, perhaps there's not as much pushback from the big uh, for-profit Uh, companies. Um, And it's just generally easier to make things happen in a a smaller town where there's a, where there are fewer voices and and perhaps a more functional city government because there's a greater sense of, you know, um, community responsibility. But there are, there are several in Michigan right now, not in Detroit, but there's one in, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Sebowing, and another in Marshall, um, and I, w- I wonder, you know, for folks who really are serious uh, or seriously interested in in seeing a change like this in, in their communities, I wonder if it might be worth, you know, talking to the folks who are involved in that or who are who who get services through these um, through these networks. You know, that would be one way to hear. The pluses and minuses, and and the places where it has succeeded, and the, and the vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, where I'm from, we have some similar problems with our with uh, public utilities, and uh, you know they're not they're not perfect. Uh, so I think you know sometimes a, a, you try to take a step towards something different, and it ends up being a step forward, and sometimes it ends up being a step back, and yeah. getting as much information in advance about where the where the challenges might be can help um push it in a more positive direction but i i completely understand the the lack of trust in, in some of these organizations and sure. um and the concerns
0: yeah uh, again john really appreciate the call and the comments let's go to matthew in Livonia. matthew what's on your mind
3: thanks for taking my call stephen i 'm a filmmaker and i 've been working with a national nonprofit called Connect Nation on this exact topic uh, we 've been sent into over a dozen communities in Michigan and other states as well to uh, interview leaders in the community and also just people and homeowners farm owners uh, about their thoughts on this particular topic and One thing that always stood out to me especially from the um, the old time farmers were that they almost look at this as it's the same issue when they first got power to the farm, that they were the last ones to get power out to these rural communities and how much of an impact it finally made on them. And they kind of look at it in that same way, that they're these younger communities, these younger farmers don't want to stick around if they don't have access to the Internet. They, they can't get people to stay in the area and the the younger people to commit to being – farmers when they don't have access to the outside world
0: wow wow uh, that's a such an interesting experience matthew uh, uh, tell me a little more about this idea of going to these places and trying to to get people internet access
3: it was quite the uh, quite the experience you know I, I talk about my northern michigan for example experiences we got to go out and interview you know uh leaders of uh, communities of, uh, you know, municipalities and people out there. And every one of them said the same thing, that without Internet, these communities have no future in the modern world. And they've kind of been pushed off to the side simply because it's expensive to get it out there. My task was to help these communities build their case as part of Connected Nations um, a task to then present to the federal government in uh, hopes that they'll be uh, awarded grants and help get some funding to get internet out to these areas to build this infrastructure yeah yeah. what's the infrastructure what would be the best approach for them would it be cabling or would it be say a wi-fi solution for for them right and help them understand what infrastructure is in place already and it is exceptionally lacking you know i actually got to follow around people who were documenting infrastructure and everywhere is is lacking in those rural areas there's just yeah. there's no investment in it
0: yeah uh, Matthew I'm really glad you called and, and, and shared that experience um, you know Karen one of the things that jumps out at me from Matthew's call is this link between rural and urban the problems are different right uh, in in rural communities I think you're really talking about infrastructure. As as the main barrier to internet access, um, but but that looks, uh, you know, in practical terms, like what we see in places like Detroit and neighborhoods where um, where people don't have enough money to to connect to broadband uh, all the time. We think of them as different problems, I think, but. But maybe part of the solution is thinking of it all more globally and making that connection. You know, the, when Matthew talked about not being able to keep people in rural communities because there isn't broadband, it reminded me of the way in which people leave cities like Detroit, right, when they grow up and and uh, get an opportunity. They don't. They don't want to stay uh, because the things that they want aren't here. That's that's a mirror. It's not. Uh, it's not a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. That's a really. That was a, a very powerful uh, point of view that Matthew shared. So I'm also glad that he shared it. And yeah, I think you know a lot of um, young folks really want to participate in life online in a meaningful way, not just consuming things, but. Being part of conversations on social media and um, and using the internet to learn and work and it's really you know if you cannot do that where you live the the natural uh, choice for a lot of folks is to relocate to a place where you can do that and that is draining a lot of the best folks from our rural parts you know our rural communities and that is a a, a darn shame because there's so much wonderful stuff in those parts of of the country and in those parts of Michigan, I'm sure that the good news is that in the infrastructure bill passed uh, last year, there were $65 billion uh, allocated to uh, solving some of our broadband issues nationwide. And about two thirds of that, about $42 billion is earmarked for building infrastructure in rural communities to support internet access. So that is a move in a, in a positive direction for these Communities to have better access, but you know there's still you know you can still be in an urban community and not have great internet access. And you know the the subsidies that this bill provides for in urban areas, and the you know the little bit of infrastructure that will probably grow in urban areas as a consequence of this bill, probably is not enough to really um, make a big turnaround in urban areas for for people who have internet access issues there. As a consequence of affordability, and so I think, you know, you'll see the same dynamic: people really frustrated by not being able to get what they um, what they need in order to participate in conversations, in order to, to grow and learn, and feeling really frustrated by that, but perhaps also because of affordability, unable to relocate. So, um, so yeah, there's it. It it so this bill will solve some problems, but certainly not all of them.
0: Yeah. Okay. Karen Landman, uh, it was really great to have you here to have this discussion. Congratulations on the piece, and thanks so much for joining us on uh, Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. It was a real pleasure to be on and to to speak with you and with some of your listeners. When we come back,
0: Chad Livengood of Crane's Detroit Business is going to join us to talk about funding for an old infrastructure project here in Michigan, the roads, all the money that we decided to spend a few years ago in order to make the roads a little better. I don't know if you've noticed, I have, they aren't much better. Why is that so and what do we still need to be doing? We'll find out next when we get back with more Detroit Today. Right today on 1019 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It is coming. As we move further into this election year, we are going to hear more and more about Governor Gretchen Whitmer's pledge a few years ago to, quote, fix the damn roads. That was the signature phrase of her campaign to become governor in the first place. And she will be judged, I think, in large measure for a second term about whether she's lived up to that pledge. But Whitmer is, of course, not the first governor to spend lots of political capital and time promising to fix the roads here in Michigan. Her predecessor, Governor Rick Snyder, spent years in Lansing trying to pass a comprehensive road funding plan. He asked for more money and was told no. Governor Jennifer Granholm, before him, tried to put two cents on the sales tax. Remember that? They called her Two Penny Jenny, making fun of that proposal. She said, that's what we need to make the roads better. Governor Snyder ended up with the 2015 package that raised $600 million yearly from an increase in the state's gas tax and registration fees, and eventually took another $600 million out of other areas of the state budget. That, all, that plan all phased in within the past couple of years, and it was supposed to make things better, was supposed to stop us from teeth-chattering rides down so many roads here in Michigan. But what effect has it really had? not just on roads, but on other infrastructure here in Michigan. That is a question that's going to come up over and over again during this year's campaigns. And my next guest took some time recently to look into what the answers are to those questions for Crane's Detroit business. Chad Livengood is a senior editor there, and he covers politics and policy. He joins us now to talk about what he filed. Chad, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. So before we get to roads, Whitmer and the GOP just allocated $250 million for broadband infrastructure grants to expand high-speed internet to unserved areas. We were just talking in our last conversation about gaps in broadband access. What exactly will this money do, and who is it going to serve?
4: Well, I think it's going to hit some of the areas, uh, particularly on the outer edge um, of our urban-suburban uh, areas. And just recently, uh, there was an initiative to bring broadband internet to Romeo. Um, I mean, a town in northern Macomb County uh, that uh, is fairly populated, but didn't have good widespread access. Uh, and I know one of the issues in some of these towns is to getting uh, that, that, that cable, uh, uh, that uh, fiber line down your road is crossing railroads, um, of all things. It's not. An easy endeavor. Railroads have a uh, companies have a lot of of, of uh, special laws just for them, uh, and so moving a utility across a railroad is is a Herculean uh, uh, issue that, that a lot of these towns run into. Stephen, I'm I'm originally from Chelsea. My parents live one quarter of a mile west of the city limits of Chelsea. Uh, have so for 20 years, they've never been able to get Comcast to run a uh, run a a cable line down to their uh, little uh, 10 house subdivision uh, on the outskirts of town. And, uh, and, and it's just cost prohibitive. Now, one thing that I think is a game changer in a lot of this, uh, and we'll see if this, if this helps fund it is 5g. Um, my, my dad just got uh, high speed internet for the first time. He's been using DSL for 20 years uh, on, on an AT&T line and, and he just got a 5g connection because, you know, there's a 5G tower down the road, uh, and internet is completely, um, you know, much more faster. And so I think that'll be kind of the key to see is whether, um, this money gets put to use, uh, effectively subsidizing, um, uh, cell tower 5G technology in, in more, uh, rural areas to, to, uh, overcome the, the barriers of, of, uh, of pulling uh cable line through the road which is pretty expensive to do and that's why you don't that's why we just we have a lot of unserved areas in the state.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to talk about roads of course and this 2015 law that was intended at least to improve our roads and infrastructure here in Michigan. Uh what effect has that change had on the quality of our roads? I think for most people they could say hmm, it seems like old times that uh, <laughs> things don't seem terribly different, but but maybe that's about impression and not reality. What, what did you find? Yeah,
4: it actually is um, reality. Uh, so in 2015, when the legislature passed this $1.2 billion a year plan, uh, in the face of every study that said we need to be spending $2 billion more a year, starting right then, that $1.2 billion plan took six years to get fully funded. It was not fully funded until last year uh, because the legislature put off the tax increase until uh, 2017 after the 2016 election, and then they phased in this use of general fund money. This is the first time in history where we have taken from the state's general fund uh, checking account that we use to fund higher education, the state police, corrections, uh, the rest of, of, of state government, uh, the, the Department of Health and Human Services, Medicaid portion of our budget, um, that is all now competing with the roads. And we're talking about a, a $12 billion budget and $600 million of every year now uh, goes towards roads instead of uh, our roads being completely funded by uh, users uh, through gasoline and diesel tax and the vehicle registration fee, otherwise known as the birthday tax. Uh, and so what happened was that it was a very slow phase-in of this $1.2 billion a year, even when the engineers are telling us we need to be spending $2 billion more a year uh, to get uh, effectively get 80% of roads um, up to good or fair condition. I looked at the data on poor condition roads, and in 2015, of roads were rated in in poor condition. This year, based on current projections, 40% of roads are are rated in poor condition. So um, we are really just barely treading uh, treading water here. Now, the number of percentage of good roads has gone up um, from 18% to 25%, um, and and effectively we had this – one of our biggest problems uh, in the – uh, and we we can start calling this the sort of the lost half decade, uh, to steal a phrase from uh, from uh, uh, from the Republican <laughs> Party that uh, dubbed uh, Jennifer Granholm's time in office the, the lost decade. This is the lost half decade in roads. We have just essentially just barely keeping up, and we had a large proportion of our roads, almost half of them, were in, in fair condition. Well, what happens with, with roads in fair condition if you don't have money to uh, put tar on them and and do um, uh, routine maintenance upgrade. They just fall into poor condition, and we see that over and over. Uh, whether it's in the city of Detroit, I mean, if you drive on Mound Road in Detroit right now, uh, you have better um, you better uh, uh, grip onto that steering wheel pretty hard because that road is just an absolute uh, atrocity. It's just falling um, apart, yeah and, um, and and we can you know, we can blame the heavy truck traffic, um, uh, but at the end of the day, we just simply aren't uh, fixing the roads when we have to. we're We're extending the life of these roads well beyond, I mean, five, ten, fifteen years beyond their their normal life, and that is really the what is really the rot and eating away at our roads. Is we, we are, we are not keeping up with maintaining them yeah. and it's, it's, you know, on full display, particularly the mile roads in the suburbs, uh, uh, middle belt and Livonia. I mean, you could just, everyone knows of that really bad road and local roads are in particularly bad shape and getting worse. And, um, we talked about, uh, Governor Whitmer's, um uh, what she's done to fix the roads. Uh, you know, she struck out in her first year, she asked for a 45 cent uh, per gallon gas tax increase. The legislature uh, effectively told her to pound sand and uh, and, and didn't, didn't uh, let her, didn't agree to anything. And And so then she turned around in early 2020 before the pandemic and used uh, her authority to get the State Transportation Commission to um, issue $3.5 billion in bonds. I -hmm. I call this the uh, the uh, get-out-the-damn-credit-card plan, which is effectively (laughs) what every other governor except for Snyder has done, uh, going back to Blanchard, Engler, Granholm, when the legislature has denied them uh, a gas tax increase or some kind of tax increase to pay for roads, in a dedicated, ongoing fashion, uh, they just go and, and get the credit card up for the taxpayers out. We're still paying debt on 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 uh, Granholm era bonds uh, yeah. taking out the early part of this of this century, um, and those and in Whitmer uh, her three point five billion. We're going to pay one point six billion in, in interest over thirty years, right. um, uh, but that's what's really fueling a lot of the highway construction projects you're seeing right now. The 275 rebuild in Western Wayne County, I 96 in Western Oakland County. that starting. They're going to add another lane for a flex lane, just like uh, the US 23 um, uh, uh, flex lane that that opens up during rush hour to help uh, mm-hmm. with congestion. Um, but those those highway projects you're seeing are, are the benefit of, of this new debt. Meanwhile, local roads can't get can't be paid for with this bond money and local roads are sort of left to um, this, this funding formula that has caused stagnation, and they're left to, um, uh, to, to local counties if they want to pass a tax increase. One final point on this. The engineers with county roads say that we need to be um, upgrading or working on 15% of, of those roads on an annual basis.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, last year, we they hit... Um, uh, they hit uh, 5,600 miles, uh, 5,700 miles of, of, of roadway. It was a record. Um, there's 13,500 uh, miles. If you, uh, uh, excuse me, there's 90,000 total miles. 13,500 is what 15% is. So there is a deficit.
0: So we're still 7, way 7,800 miles. 7,800 yeah. miles.
4: Year. Every yeah. year. Every just, right. year, just going to further deteriorate, deterioration. Because yeah. our county road commission simply can't keep up with uh, with the demand.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chad Livengood of Crane's Detroit Business. Always great to have you here talking about uh, policy and politics and a lot of times roads here in the state of Michigan. Thanks so much for joining today. We can never
4: talk about roads enough, Stephen. <laughs>
0: That's right. <laughs> Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Uh, Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about a better way to understand the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.